Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. We have big news unfolding at the state capitol, the legislature today. There is big things happening in Washington. We're going to talk about uh, all of that and more with a terrific panel. Um, I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us for another edition of Political Rewind. This is another one of those shows when I look down the list of things that we want to address, and you could start almost anywhere. Uh, there's so much weighty news about politics going on right now. Um, but we'll first introduce the panel and then start going down that list. It's Wednesday. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, with us. How are you, Greg? I'm doing great. How are you, Bill? I'm terrific. Um, the first story we're going to take on, and I don't want to go into it quite yet, though, you had a very active role in helping uncover, and we'll get to that in just a minute. We're joined by uh, Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University, among other things. Amy's expertise is on the federal judiciary, and that often comes into play in the conversations we have on the show. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, Thank you for being here. Leroy Chapman. Managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is back with us today. Leroy, you certainly, in your position, know something about trying to figure out which stories are the top stories of the day and how to play different uh, elements of the news. Uh, thanks, Bill. Uh, yes, uh, I do know uh, somewhat about that, and uh, I almost never feel smarter, even though I have to make those decisions all the time. <laughs> okay, uh, let's get right to it. Greg, um, let's start by explaining that when, um, when a presidential election is held in every state, the candidate who wins the election um, has already got a group of electors uh, who have been named. In fact, that's who you vote for on a presidential ballot is the slate of in Democratic or Republican electors, or I suppose other parties as well, should they be on the ballot. Um, and those electors are the ones who cast the ballots uh, that are sent to Congress for certification. So after the Georgia presidential election, it was the Democratic slate of electors that were certified uh, as the, uh, uh, the accurate and true electors in the state. But, Greg, on the day that those electors were meeting— in uh, the state capitol, the Democrats, you uncovered a secret meeting that was going on among some Republicans who claim to be the true electors. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is usually a no-frills affair, right? <clears throat> it's usually a formality where <clears throat> where the electors go and formally cast their ballots for whoever won the presidency. And if it's a Democratic winner like it was in Georgia, then the Democrats go and the Republican electors stay home and vice versa. Um, well, while the Democrats were holding their formal ceremony up in the state Senate chambers, um, downstairs, I think it was room 213 or 216, behind heavy wooden doors at the Georgia Capitol, 
um, a group of Republicans was gathering, and I went up to someone at the door and said, what's going on? Because I saw David Schaefer, the party chair. I saw some, some well-known activists. I saw State Senator Burt Jones. I said, what's, what's happening? Because I just interviewed these guys um, the day before, some of those, those fellows, about uh, the electoral process, and no one gave me any indication they were going to do anything. Well, they were for filling out their own basically phony <laughs> electoral slate in what David Schaefer told me was – a just-in-case move, just in case Joe Biden's victory in Georgia got tossed out. Of course, by then, it was very clear that wouldn't happen. They had already done recounts. Uh, lawsuits were already being dismissed left and right. Um, bipartisan election officials had, had put, put, tried to put an end to the claim of, of, of widespread voting fraud. But still, this group was meeting to f- fill out their own phony slate, as they said, just in case. And uh, that leads us to the headline which is that um, the Department of Justice has now let it be known, an interview with Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco on CNN yesterday, in which she said that, yes, Department of Justice is investigating fraudulent elector certifications. That was her language, Amy. And they are looking at whether or not there are criminal charges that could be filed as part of Uh, perhaps a larger investigation. We know that DOJ has a larger investigation into other matters in which uh, Trump allies tried to overturn the results of the election. And um, in in any of these cases, it is conceivable that criminal charges could be filed, although DOJ certainly, Amy, isn't talking about that. Yes. I mean, I think some of it is is trying to understand the scope of what exactly took place. I mean, it's a year later and we're still not entirely – it all has not yet been unveiled about what was sort of the scope of the efforts to try to overturn the electoral results and what types of actions were taken. Um, And there are a number of points, this being one of them, where people might have put themselves in – legal jeopardy, right? So we've got not only the sort of false uh, slates that were sent uh, to the National Archives, so it's not as though uh, this was hidden, it was sort of publicly uh, done, but uh, fraudulently. Um, But that also goes sort of hand in hand with the news that um, Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA, just got permission in May to seat Um, a special grand jury, which means that it can meet for longer than a normal grand jury. It can meet for uh, 12 months to continue investigating, for example, uh, the calls that both former President Donald Trump as well as Senator Lindsey Graham made to the Secretary of State um, about the election and, quote unquote, finding the votes. Leroy, the New York Times and other uh, news organizations report that there are seven states that DOJ is looking into, seven states that sent what they're calling fraudulent slates of electors uh, to Washington. And uh, so Georgia's uh, just one of them. Um, but the f- fact of the matter is, uh, this it's, it, it's interesting that the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party was kind of the leader of this group that uh, sent those fraudulent elector uh, uh, names off to uh, Washington. Leroy? Well, you know, polling has consistently shown that there is a wide gap between uh, what uh, folks who identify as Republican uh, and folks who identify as Democrat, uh, their confidence in the election system. So uh, what we're seeing from the party leaders 
uh, is a reflection of the conversation that keeps going and these some information bubbles here that keep pushing the idea of uh, fraud in 2020 and also the need to, to push election reform because of the prospect of more fraud. So ultimately, and, uh, you know, we have some polling that will be coming out uh, this week, uh, and we've asked that question of uh, voters uh, in Georgia about their confidence uh, in the election system. So uh, I think this uh, really, if we're looking at, uh, you know, three years from now, uh, when we're talking about, uh, I'm sorry, two years from now, as we're talking about 2024, uh, we're going to be in a similar uh, situation and what's going to make it worse is the fact that people have been um, polarized by the idea that there was fraud before and people who think that the system is vulnerable and open to fraud. You know, what happens then when uh, something that used to be pro forma now is uh, packed with that, that kind of with those types of politics? Yeah, uh, Greg, we, we need to point out that we don't know uh, whether there has been any criminal activity involved here. That, that's still to be uh, determined. And, and so um, that, that may be, there may not be criminal charges here. It is worth noting, though, Greg, that in Michigan and in uh, New Mexico, two of the other states that sent a fake slate of electors, it was the attorney generals of those states which uh, asked DOJ to investigate this. Uh, the attorney general of Georgia, Chris Carr, has uh, not said anything, to the best of my knowledge, about this. Yeah, yeah that, that won't happen in Georgia, given that Chris Carr's a Republican seeking re-election. But um, what Professor Steigerwald said earlier is, you know, this could very well be, uh, we don't have any indication of this, but it's not hard to imagine this will be part of Fonnie Willis's uh, inquiry, right? Uh, she has new investigative tools now with the special grand jury. Uh, the AJC will have a story about this later today, exploring exploring what this means um, and one more point I want to make, too, about this, just so our listeners know, this wasn't some fringe group of GOP electors in this fake slate. Th- these were – this was the party chair. This was a candidate for lieutenant governor who, who's, a, who's backed by Donald Trump. These were very well-known activists and party officials. Um, there was four of them who said, no, I don't want to be part of it. Uh, one of them was John Isaacson, Jr., uh, the late senator's son. Um, others had different reasons. Um, had nothing to do with, uh, you know, with what was happening, just personal reasons. They, they said no. Um, but but of those 16 who showed up, th- these are these are party officials, not like, you know, not extremists. So that, that should be that should be considered as we talk about this. Yeah. And we're um, the reporting suggests that uh, this was all organized in each of these states by uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani, I think, Greg. Isn't isn't that the reporting we've seen on this? That's what it suggests. And remember, too, that Rudy Giuliani was in and out of the state capitol for different legislative hearings that are confirmed as part of Fonnie Willis's investigation. She has said that that is part of, again, not, not an indication there'll be criminal charges regarding that, but it, it's at least part of her probe into, into Donald Trump's attempts to undermine Georgia's election. Well, we, we will certainly watch how this continues to unfold. Uh, one last note about it, Amy. It is of, uh, of, of note that uh, DOJ talked about this at all. You know, uh, Lisa Monaco agreed to this interview. Uh, She did. She was very, very circumspect and wouldn't say much, but she did acknowledge that DOJ is investigating 
a wide range of issues relating to efforts to overturn the presidential election. And, and to some extent, clearly doing that because the Department of Justice has been under an awful lot of pressure to uh, look into uh, whether or not there are criminal violations involved in o- attempts to overturn the election. And they obviously felt they needed to say at least something, Amy. No, I think that's very true. I mean, they're walking sort of a difficult line. On the one hand, right, we we know that there were activities that were undertaken that were attempting to subvert the election. We all got to watch what happened on January 6th. Um, all the way through and saw people right, vandalizing the Capitol, breaking in, um, shouting, hang Mike Pence and building gallows. And so we, we saw all of that. But at the same time, um, we are seeing very split sort of partisan responses to how this should be dealt with. And part of the concern is not it's, it's not just about sort of what happened in 2020. It's what happens in 2022, what happens in 2024, Right. Is this allowable? Because at some point it's going to switch which group. Right. If, if we say that these activities are OK, then it's going to be a different party that's going to utilize them and flip back and forth. And that's its own issue as we try to sort of really protect democracy and ensure that our elections are fair and free. OK. A big story unfolding at the state capitol today, Greg Bluestein, a bipartisan omnibus bill Uh, to expand mental health services in Georgia, a bill which has the strong, strong backing of Speaker of the House David Ralston is going to be introduced. We're going to talk about the mental health bill a little later in the show uh, when Ellen Eldridge, our senior health care reporter at GPB News, will join us. Uh, But Ralston hinted a little bit at it yesterday. He didn't want to say much when he was a guest on our show. But I do want to unpack some of what he did say with the panel and start with you, Greg. I asked him at one point uh, about some of the hot-button issues that uh, the legislature is going to be taking up and whether he wanted to see them move forward or not. Uh, One of them, of course, is the ban on so-called critical race theory, which isn't really taught in schools or uh, in Georgia at all, K through 12. Um, So, Greg, let's listen to what the speaker said about that and then talk about it. Bill, you know as well as I do that the fact that something is not an actual problem uh, has never stood in the way of it becoming an issue uh, in this General Assembly. (laughs) And I've dealt with that on a number of occasions. Uh, um, And uh, I suspect before uh, I go back to the mountains, I'll have to deal with it again. I think the the important thing about critical race theory is it get, really is tied up into the whole issue of uh, parental control and how much influence parents have over their over their children's uh, uh, education. So, uh, Greg Bluestein. Uh, clearly, the speaker is not a supporter of a ban on CRT. At least that's the only way we could read those tea leaves. But he did go on to say that it was a different matter, and he, he spoke to that in the soundbite you just heard, when it came to listening to parents' concerns about things like so-called obscene materials in schools. Greg? 
You know, Bill, sometimes speaking with the speaker in an interview, it's like reading tea leaves. You guys did a great job yesterday about extracting some real news from him, and this was part of it, right? He, he it was very lukewarm at best over these anti-CRT bills that the Governor Kemp um, has also uh, backed, uh, but he, he was much more open to legislation that his, his number two, his kind of right-hand woman, Jan Jones, who's the number two Republican in the, in the state house, is, is backing to, um, to, to, to ban, a, which defined as obscene materials in public school libraries and such. And what he's hinting at here is support for uh, what advocates call a parental bill of rights. And we'll see more legislation about that probably this week. It's also backed by the governor. And it's all aimed at giving parents more of a say in their kids' education. But, of course, that brings up a whole <laughs> Pandora's box of questions about how much the community actually should be involved in education and should we leave it up to administrators and trained professionals and, and teachers um, to handle that? Or should you know, it be sort of more of a dem democratic vote over what should be taught in schools? Leroy, um, Speaker Ralston is often the cooling saucer in a cup of hot button issues. Uh, but every now and then, voters get ahead of him. So, for instance, back when he and Brian Kemp didn't want to see a, uh, a, a six-week abortion ban, uh, when that was not their first preference, they were essentially muscled into agreeing to it because constituents demanded it. So we shouldn't assume that just because he doesn't support a ban on critical race theory, it is necessarily dead this session. Yeah, I think the speaker is savvy enough and seasoned enough to uh, understand the need to harness some of the outrage because that's going to help politically. But uh, as you get to the details of critical race theory specifically, you know, some of the arguments begin to be challenged and fall apart on what the real threat is. So he understands that. And I think also, too, he understands, uh, you know, how some of these outcomes, certainly uh, if uh, the outrage winds up materializing into real legislation, that it may put Georgia in a place that it really doesn't want to be. Uh, and moreover, uh, the things that might be uh, work in a primary situation, especially, uh, you know, may not in a general election. So uh, I think the politics of the state is changing such where I think these calculations are having to change a little bit, too. So I think you're right in one sense is that uh, the speaker's probably a little bit ahead of the electorate sometimes. Uh, but also, too, I think he's, he's savvy enough to understand, too, that uh, he has uh, several things to do with the, with his legislative body, uh, not misstepping, but also, too, with the electoral politics in the state that's now very closely, closely divided. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see. And, but the uh, critical race theory thing, we are following closely with our education team, and we've got a really good explainer because I think in, in, in a situation like this, the thing that really matters is clarity in fact. And so, you know, that, that, that's carrying the day a little bit. <laughs> Amy? I think the speaker has a – he always has a difficult sort of road to be able to traverse as he does this. Um, he prides himself on a House which has a number of bipartisan bills uh, that get passed each year in that it is sort of less divisive than uh, we may sort of normally think generally of the lower chamber. Um, but it's also an election year that there's a number of bills uh, as people who are in the various chambers are also uh, running in very contentious primaries. And so I think he's also trying to ensure that he um, – 
as speaker kind of walks a trail that also doesn't necessarily um, put one candidate above the other because he's, as he said yesterday on the show, he tries not to do endorsements and things like that and wants to sort of stay out of that. And so it's a difficult one. And it's also difficult because we are dealing with a lot of issues, um, sort of as Leroy mentioned, um, that people are not always necessarily aware of what it is that we're talking about. And we are, you know, particularly with critical race theory, seeing that sort of used as sometimes a shorthand to say we shouldn't teach about civil rights or we shouldn't teach about slavery, which, of course, is, is problematic. Um, of course, I'm a professor, so I therefore um, this becomes a difficult one uh, to discuss and obviously um, where it comes in. Um, and I do think that some of this is that we, we, we can see reactions is that there are sort of where do we want to take it and what does it mean? Um, it's, it might seem like a silly analogy, but one of the big issues is a lot of people reacted when uh, they changed how math was taught. Um, and a lot of people said, wait, this wasn't how I was taught math and that was the right way to do it. Um, the way that they're teaching math now is brilliant, actually, and it means that students are able to do much more advanced math when they get there, even if it seems different. And so that's sometimes also that disconnect that can happen. All right. Um, we should point out we're not going to be able to talk about it today, uh, but we're, I'm going to defer it till tomorrow because we got so much on the agenda today. But now the acting chancellor is weighing in. She is asking uh, presidents and provosts at state universities, uh, whether or not they are in fact uh, teaching classes that in some way uh, deal with oppression and privilege. It's a response to a letter she got from a conservative uh, representative in the state capitol. So uh, we're going to follow up that and do more with that uh, uh, tomorrow. Um, Leroy, one other thing. We tried to get Ralston. This, by the way, Jim Galloway joined me for the conversation with Ralston. Um, you know, he was so effusive in his praise for Brian Kemp when he introduced him at the State of the State that we asked, was that his endorsement of Brian Kemp? No one could do it better is essentially what he said. Um, and what does he think? He wouldn't answer, really. Um, but we did ask him what he thought of David Perdue's challenging Kemp. Let's listen to a little of what he said. Well, it's a free country, and I mean, he's he's free to run as as is any Georgian. Um, I'm 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 trying to understand his rationale. Um, you know, a rationale that says, you know, we're divided, and I'm going to unify us by further dividing us. Uh, uh, I'm I'm not sure. I'm sure that there is a deep meaning there that I'm not grasping yet. So I'm 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 trying to get um, I'm trying to get my brain wrapped around uh, uh, what the rationale is for running, to, to, at the end of the day, somebody's going to be nominated. So, uh, Leroy, I don't think there's much question how the speaker feels about David Perdue uh, being a candidate in the race. He, he also went on to say that he worries, of course, that in the end, at the end of the day, somebody's got to run against Stacey Abrams, and uh, the challenge between Perdue and Kemp could make it difficult for whoever emerges from that primary to beat her. Yeah, what a what a um, a, a non endorsement, right? <laughs> uh, I think it's pretty clear what uh, what the speaker the calculation that he's making, right? Because you know ultimately, uh, I think that many in the Republican establishment uh, understood that a Purdue challenge uh, would make November 
much more hard than it than, than maybe it, it, it could be uh, if the party unified around Kemp early and the fundraising and the staffing and all those things uh, were uh, aimed toward winning in November uh, uh, against a formidable opponent rather than infighting right now. So ultimately, I think the standing ovation you saw spoke, uh, and I think what what the speaker had to say, uh, it's not an endorsement, but man, uh, he certainly uh, spoke loudly, I think, with, uh, you know, what he thinks is the right thing right now for Republicans. And uh, I think uh, throughout this process, uh, we're going to see uh, also, I think we've all been looking for what the uh, Trump's influence will be. And Purdue is probably one of the biggest litmus tests of uh, Trump's uh, influence with Republicans in Georgia. Greg, I got to get to a break, but give us your quick thoughts before we do. A really important thing to remember is that Speaker Ralston isn't this staunch ally of Governor Kemp. They get along, but but remember, Speaker Ralston backed Doug Collins over Kemp's handpicked U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler. So that was telling that he said a lot of nice things about Kemp and not so nice things about David Perdue. Yeah, thank you for that observation. That's really good. All right, let's get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with more in a moment. Leroy Chapman, Greg Bluestein, Amy Steigerwald join me uh, for today's Political Rewind. Ellen Eldridge, uh, GPB's uh, senior health care reporter, will be with us just a little while when we talk about this major mental health bill that's introduced, going to be introduced today at the state capitol. Before that, uh, Greg, you covered the Faith Ralph Reed's Faith and Freedom Coalition luncheon the other day. That's always a major gathering of conservative Christians. Ralph Reed continues to have a pretty important role in that movement. Remember, we remember he was a huge supporter of Donald Trump's. And um, you came away from there uh, noticing, hard not to, that Ralph Reed pretty well gave his uh, uh, nod to some candidates and not to others. Give us a little bit of what you saw. Yeah, Rockford outright endorsed um, Herschel Walker, Senate bid, and it it is awkward because it came shortly after Gary Black went up there and gave gave a really, um, you know, uh, forceful speech where he quoted the scripture and and talked about the priorities that were on many of the the activists in that room's top wish lists. Um, so he gave an outright endorsement to Hersh Walker, and he said very nice things about Governor Kemp, who got not one but two standing ovations in that room. This was a crowd that you could imagine, you know, um, not that long ago, Governor Kemp was getting booed in, in audiences like this from conservative grassroots activists um, who were hardcore supporters of Donald Trump. And yes, there was lawmakers in this room, too, so it was unlikely that he was going to get booed. I just thought it would be more of a polite, polite applause, you know, uh, um, respectful. But this was an outpouring of support and a reminder that, A, politics is hard to predict in Georgia. It's hard to – even the best polls might not show where this primary goes. But, B, a reminder that this is the most conservative governor in, in modern Georgia history and the first lifelong Republican governor. This is the guy who signed the anti-abortion bill. This is the guy who's going to who's probably going to sign a, a major gun rights expansion this year and is sued all sorts of uh, sued Joe Biden's administration left and right. Um, he's 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 not a moderate. <laughs> and 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 even David Perdue's not trying to paint him as such. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see over the next few months um, how this campaign shakes out. 
So David Perdue spoke to the group, too. You characterized the response he got as he received a, quote, smattering of applause, uh, obviously not greeted with great enthusiasm. Uh, but then, in a, after being in front of a crowd that was largely unmasked, you learned from his campaign that he had tested positive for COVID-19, Greg. Yeah, fortunately, he's asymptomatic and, and no fevers, and he's feeling well, is what I was told yesterday. Um, so that's that's good. But yeah, this is a setback for his campaign. He had to go virtual the last few days of the runoff cycle, if you remember that, because one of his aides got a, uh, contracted the virus. Um, in this case, it's him himself. He himself who got it. He's vaccinated. He's boosted. Uh, but now he's he has to do remote um, remote gatherings for the next few days. But the word smattering was purposeful because. Patricia Murphy, the AJC political insider columnist, was standing next to me, and it said, how do we describe that? Because it was not this overflowing <laughs> burst of emotion. Yeah. It was very polite. Yeah, yeah. Um, Amy, uh, I said on the show yesterday, and I'd love your take on this, that um, we're seeing a lot of these examples of, of, of prominent Republicans who seem to be giving Kemp their support, um, whether it's a David Ralston or a Ralph Reed or whatever. But what we don't see is that quiet Trump base, those voters out there who are continuing to be devoted to him, who may very well have a different take on this and may be uh, much more enthusiastic about David Perdue. It's hard to know, yes? Most decidedly. So on the one hand, you have the fact that for the party, a primary such as this is, to be perfectly blunt, a gift to Stacey Abrams, right? It detracts from their ability to raise money for the general election. It means that you are sort of pitting uh, those who should be sort of united instead of divided against each other. And it allows the Democrats to be able to simply focus on getting their sort of policy things out while there is basically a really nasty food fight going on 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 the other side. And so in many ways, right, especially for the party, if they can tamp it down and either reduce the amount of contention that is happening or make it so that it's not really a challenge such that the governor, who very clearly I think the you know, the the incumbent usually gets the support, right, that they can support him, it makes it a lot easier. The thing is, though, that that's not necessarily the base, right? It's not those who pushed uh, Purdue to run. It's not those who clearly have concerns uh, about the policies that Kemp has or has not endorsed. And so what we don't know is how the voters are going to respond. But, I mean, there are a lot of arguments for why this type of primary um, has the very real potential to harm no matter which of them ends up winning in the general election. Yeah, Leroy? Uh, you know, so, yeah, certainly. Um, I think that there's a, a lot to, to, I think, learn about uh, uh, former President Trump's influence uh, in uh, Republican primaries, because we've, we've seen it in other states, we've seen it elsewhere, we've seen it in some congressional races. Uh, we've seen it in plenty of places where we've had incumbents, folks who are well-funded, who uh, the Trump influence uh, basically was deciding. But there have been a few cases where it wasn't. 
And I think that, you know, it's sort of like boxing, right? You know, sort of styles sort of make fights. <laughs> so even if uh, that is a, if, if the former president uh, is, is a clear um, advantage in many ways for, for, for David Purdue, David Purdue as Kansas still has to run on who he is uh, with a lot of voters. And uh, so just simply being uh, endorsed by the former president uh, may not be enough. And plus, when you say style makes rights, I mean, Kemp, uh, I think, has the ability to be formidable. And so there are conditions here that we've just not quite seen in a lot of places. So I, I don't think we, we know. So uh, I think we're, 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 we're going to find out some, some we're going to have some answers pretty in a hurry here. Uh, can't wait to get some polling. Uh, that's going to tell us something. And AJP has some polling that's going to come out soon, but we'll be watching that over the next couple of months. And I think we'll learn some things. Yeah, look, um, there are differences between the, the David Perdue and Brian Kemp on when it comes to some policy issues, right? Uh, David Perdue has said he supports Buckhead cityhood. Brian Kemp hasn't gone that far yet. Um, David Perdue says he would have more urgently expanded um, gun rights, uh, that he would eliminate the state sales tax, even though he has no plan to, to, to uh, replace that income $14 tax. Billion. Income tax. Sorry, state income tax. Good point. State income tax, even though he has no plan to re- replace that $14 billion in, in revenue. And um, but look, he has opened on Donald Trump it, in, at audiences. That's what he focuses on. It's Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump's support. And it's and it's saying somehow that, that the state mishandled the election, even though, again, there's no evidence whatsoever of, of that. Um, OK, one last quick uh, item that we will be able to talk about if it moves forward. But, Greg, very quickly, as if there aren't enough hot button social issues uh uh, whirling around at the legislature this uh, election year session, Senator Bruce Thompson has now introduced a bill that would countermand an FDA rule uh, that uh, says that a woman, a pregnant woman, can, with a virtual visit with a doctor, get a prescription for the abortion pill and have it sent to her in the mail. Bruce Thompson says, "Nope, you've got to have an in-person visit with a doctor." And uh, the uh, there's a lot of pushback from organizations that support a woman's right to choose. Greg? Yeah, and remember, he has a candidate, Republican candidate for labor commissioner. Um, you'll see a lot of these offices that have nothing to do with issues like guns or abortion or, or, or cultural war issues. Uh, a lot of these candidates will, will highlight that. I mean, there was a, de- a few cycles back, the major dividing point in the Secretary of State's race, race was abortion, even though the Secretary of State has nothing to do with abortion regulations in Georgia. Um, but it's important to note that that Governor Kemp and Speaker Ralston and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan have all said they have no appetite to revisit um, abortion uh, limits in Georgia, which they already see as some of the strictest in the nation. All right, let's do this. Let's go to our final break of the show right now. And when we come back, let's talk about this uh, major mental health bill, which will be introduced at the state capitol today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Before we move forward, I want to remind everybody it's Wednesday, which means it's Political Rewind Newsletter Day. If you're not a subscriber, we'd love to have you join us. You can do it by going to gpb.org slash newsletters. You'll find us there. Uh, If you subscribe this morning, I think you'll get the newsletter that goes out today uh, sometime later this afternoon. 
Um, and, you know, it's, it's my look at what I think are some of the most interesting, sometimes most important political stories of the week. But it's also kind of fun to uh, look at, uh, at uh, you know, more obscure stories, occasionally stories that are actually a little bit uh, humorous. So join us at uh, the Political Rewind newsletter. Okay, so managing editor of the AJC, Leroy Chapman, uh, AJC political reporter Greg, Greg Bustein, uh, professor of political science Amy Steigerwald have been talking with us. And now we're joined by a GPB senior health reporter, uh, Ellen Eldridge, who uh, we're glad to have with us. At Ellen, when Speaker Ralston was on the show yesterday, as you know, he talked about the importance of this bill, this mental health omnibus bill that he was going to be strongly supporting today. Um, your lead on the story that's now up at GPB News, it says a mental health omnibus bill is expected, sponsored by Republican Representative Todd Jones and Democrat Representative Mary Margaret Oliver. It's a bill that will save lives, according to its advocates, who represent more than 15 organizations, including the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, the Carter Center, and a number of others. Ellen, uh, this is a major bipartisan effort to finally address an issue that Georgia's legislature just hasn't done a lot with in for decades. Hi, yes, good morning. Uh, this this bill that's expected to drop today, and there's a press conference at the Capitol around 11 a.m. this morning, It's it's been part of a process for for years. Uh, the, the Speaker and Governor Kemp actually created the Behavioral Health Reform and Innovation Commission way back in 2019, and that's going to create some of these mental health bills through 2023, regardless of, of elections. And um, what the, the paramount issue in this bill is parity in Georgia. And what, what parity is, if you have a behavioral health challenge, such as depression or substance use disorder, those issues should be covered equally by your insurance company. So, you know, you can break your arm twice in one year and have no worries that your insurance company is going to cover your broken arm rehab, but that's not always true if you need to attend a, a detox or a rehabilitation program for substance use disorder. And, um, you know, Helen Robinson with the Carter Center, she says that parity improves health outcomes, which means that, you know, Georgia families can get treatment inside their network and don't have to pay as much. Greg? Yeah, Speaker Austin said a, a few important things in your show yesterday. One is that it's going to be bipartisan. This is going to have a widespread support from Democrats and Republicans. That's super important um, in this entire debate. Two is that there's going to be spending behind it. We've already seen some of the proposed spending plans from from Governor Kemp, and expect uh, Speaker Ralston to have his own twist on this. And and three, he's backing this himself, right? His name is going to be on this bill. It is very rare that the Speaker of the House in Georgia, any Speaker of the House. Um, signs his own name onto legislation. This shows what a priority this is. And as he told you yesterday, Bill, there is nothing in his mind more important this session than passing this legislation. So that shows you what an important measure this is to him. And uh, I expect the same treatment in the Senate, really. Yeah, Amy, um, Mary Margaret Oliver, who is a frequent mm -hmm. panelist on this show, uh, this has been a cause of hers for many, many years. And um, I got a note from her yesterday uh, at, after the show in which she 
said she liked hearing a lot of what Ralston had to say on the show and that she'd worked very closely with him about on this measure and felt strongly that this was really going to move forward in a very positive direction, Amy. Yes, my understanding is she is actually one of the co-sponsors of it, as long, along with uh, Representative Ted Jones. And I think that that sort of shows that this is, as Speaker Ralston said on the show yesterday, an issue that really has nothing to do with Democrat, Republican, rural, rural urban, uh, black, white, et cetera, right? It affects people all the way across. And so it's a real hope that this will get passed. I mean, one of the things just to sort of point out to people that there was a – um, a Parity Act passed on the federal level back in 2008, but some of the issue is that right now that's not technically enforced under state law. And so this would partly help enforce that to ensure that you don't run into problems because it should be, right, that all of this is treated similarly. It is a health issue, um, but unfortunately it gets separated out a lot. And particularly with the pandemic, we have seen um, an incredibly large uptick in uh, substance abuse issues, in mental health issues. Um, we very recently had the tragic passing of the head of MARTA. Um, and so I think all of this really sort of spurs us to recognize that it's a good time to address these issues and make sure that there's not problems with access. Leroy? Yeah, so th this is extraordinary. And this is one of those times where we've got uh, leadership in Georgia who are working to identify a problem that uh, where, where there is new urgency because of the pandemic. And there's also a history of neglect. Uh, and I think that's probably the best way to put it. I mean, you know, essentially, you know, mental health has never really been funded in, at the capacity it probably should be. Uh, we see a, certainly a situation now where uh, th there have been escalating need. There's, there has been escalating need. And uh, this is a moment where there's there's uh, new resources in order to be able to devote to it. So uh, it, I think it's a pretty good moment of uh, some leadership. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, and obviously so, a lot of what goes on in the General, General Assembly is defined by politics. Uh, this one sets politics aside in a way that I think many voters would like to see happen more often. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I think, I think that uh, the speaker deserves a lot of credit for it. Uh, this is a great leadership moment, and one of those things, I think, uh, looking back on, on his tenure will be one of the things that, uh, as we say, well, who is, who is Ralston, this will be one of the moments that uh, I think will get mentioned as uh, a moment of real impact. Ellen, uh, you quoted a couple people who have a stake in this issue for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, one, the father uh, of a young man who committed suicide. Um, and we can talk about that in a moment. You also interviewed Jeff Breedlove, who certainly Greg and I particularly knew pretty well back in the day when Jeff was very, very active and an important figure in state Republican politics. He was, uh, Greg, he was chief of staff to what, lieutenant governor. What was his role? I can't remember it off the top of my head. That and, that, and he was just a, a senior Republican official. He always sort of knew yeah. what was going on in the party. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ellen, um, Jeff, unfortunately, had a fall from grace. He had a drug uh, addiction and it cost him his political life. But now he's back uh, working at, um, uh, at 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 dealing with uh, uh, drug issues. Let me let's just play a little of what he said to you. Oh, we don't have that soundbite. I thought we did. Ellen. 
Yeah, the um, the Georgia Mental Health Policy Partnership is something that many different organizations, you listed some of them, certainly uh, Jeffrey Love with the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. They're, they're people, Georgians, with lived experience. So that means that Jeffrey Love is a person in, in long-term recovery after after what happened several several years ago. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Roland Beam, the He's with the Georgia chapter on preventing suicide. His his own son died died by suicide, and the uh, the the numbers are just are just going up. Even the the Surgeon General in December issued a, a warning about people, young people, facing devastating mental health effects. And and then in October, the American Academy of Pediatrics said that there's a national emergency in youth mental health. So this this is really something that's nationwide, that it's it's good that Georgia is finally coming through with legislation. Um, uh, Greg, uh, one of the other things that, that the speaker referred to yesterday, although I don't know how it translates into this bill, was he acknowledged that he's talked his sheriff up uh, in Blue Ridge and other law enforcement uh, officials have said to him, we would like some help uh, in dealing with people who are struggling with drug abuse, other mental health problems. We can't take care, take it all on ourselves, Greg. Yeah, I mean, that reflects what a lot of law enforcement officials say is they don't want to be the go-tos for mental health um, emergencies. They're not, they feel like they're not properly trained for it. Um, it just, it diverts their attention from, from the uh, you know, fires and, and, and medical emergencies that they are more properly trained for. And that's going to be a challenge in addressing this. And it might not be in this package today. It might be in future legislation or it might be part of a more holistic approach, but it's going to be a continuing challenge of how to set up a system where social service workers, you know, social workers, um, other uh, you know, medically trained professional can deal with, can, can, can be called upon to handle um, crises involving mental health. Um, Ellen, do you know of any way in which they are trying to work law enforcement um, relief into the packages they put it together? I'm not aware of anything specific in the in the omnibus bill, but of course it's going to include a lot of different provisions. And, and at, just covering covering this this beat, I know that several uh, police and, and law enforcement agencies they they are very well aware and raising awareness that you can't arrest yourself, you can't arrest people out of you know behavioral challenges. And um, well, one other thing I wanted to say, too, is is that though it's not specifically addressed in this bill, according to the people I've spoken with, but broadband access really does have a lot to do with mental health. And the I know that there's also bipartisan support for expanding access to broadband, um, but that is something for more rural people to access mental health care over telemedicine. Amy, you're nodding vigorously when uh, Ellen says that. Yes, so it increases access to be able to get help. Um, one of the biggest issues that we've seen during the pandemic is that, especially as people are having to do things more virtually, is how important that broadband access is to be able not only to access right school, your job, but also your healthcare providers, and um, especially right for lots of people. Um, the problem is, is that it's difficult to get to the doctor no matter what. 
Um, and especially to be able to take time off from work, to be able to do that, right? Doctors normally work sort of, you know, normal business hours. And so one way to make that easier, um, including for mental health visits, is to be able to do it virtually, right? If, if all you have to do is log on five minutes before, that's a lot faster than particularly um, in a lot of rural communities. You may have to drive um, upwards of an hour to be able to get to the closest psychiatrist or the closest psychologist. And so that itself causes issues um, for pediatrics. It's particularly difficult. Um, I know in Atlanta, for example, most of the pediatric psychologists have ginormous wait lists and simply don't have time because there just aren't that many of them. And so the other hope is that this will um, enable more people to open practices and be able to treat more patients. Uh, Greg, your final thought, thought on this. I mean, I think this also reflects uh, an understanding and acknowledgement that the criminal justice system isn't the place to treat people with mental health problems, right? And, that, and that's where it's been. That's where that's been the sort of the main repository, I guess, um, for, for, for some of these uh, people dealing with severe mental health problems. And lawmakers have, have, have come to acknowledge that Georgia's way behind other states and, and, and many, many demographics, many, many metrics, I should say. Um, and, and this is trying to catch up. And, and again, it's going to be an important step. It's going to be something, as, as Leroy mentioned, that, that could well be Speaker Ralston's legacy and something that we in the media will be covering relentlessly because of how important this is um, for, um, for the future of our state. Go. I apologize. I didn't mean to cut you off, Greg. Um, Leroy, this is a theme I know that I return to with some frequency, but I think it's an important one. Um, As you already have said to us, this kind of bipartisan effort around an issue that has genuine significance to the people of the state, to improving the health outcomes for people in the state, strikes me, as you pointed out, as exactly what voters really want to see from legislative bodies, whether it's the Georgia legislature, whether it's their own school board, city council. It's certainly not happening in Congress. And so despite the fact that in many ways there's a lot of partisan uh, bickering happening at the state capitol in this election year. This is a positive—it appears, if it heads down the right track, it could be a very positive sign about legislators being able to work together. Yeah, well, ultimately, uh, you know, I think that our politics now has veered squarely into, you know, all the flashpoint issues, and it, it becomes a lot about uh, running against something rather than running for something. And at the end of the day, the pe- people that we elect uh, have to demonstrate, you know, how have I solved a problem? Uh, this is an acute problem that increasing that has been exacerbated by a pandemic, and we know that there are areas of our state that sorely lack these resources. And so, at a certain point, this is winning elected politics too. <laughs> it's, but it's much much harder, right? So it's, it's it's easier to demonize. It's easier to just live on the edge of all of the divisive politics. It's much harder to actually do something and to deliver. And so that's that's really why this seems to be much more rare than it should be. All right, um, uh, uh, Leroy Chapman. Final words on today's political rewind. Leroy, thank you so much for joining us. Amy Steigerwald, love having you with us as well as you, Greg Lucian and Ellen Eldridge. Thank you for keeping uh, us on top of. Uh, the many health issues that you've been covering for uh, for us at GPB News, including 
uh, this major mental health bill. We're out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Back with a brand new show, of course, tomorrow. But uh, speaking of health, uh, I want you all to please stay healthy, wear your mask, and get a booster. See you tomorrow.